Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Spirit of Prophecy. We are starting another week, and this week is going to be devoted to the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse, probably one of the most famous passages of Bible prophecy. Every prophecy series is going to have the Olivet Discourse included in there a lot. In fact, it's probably going to start most prophecy series. And it is one that I believe is probably one of the most misunderstood passages in all the Bible. No one is consistent when it comes to the Olivet Discourse. And it is going to be my goal in this week to present to you an explanation of everything in the Olivet Discourse that actually makes complete sense through the whole thing. Many interpretations out there of the Olivet Discourse, but who can prove that theirs is correct? I think I can prove to you that my interpretation is correct. I have wrestled with this for a long time, and I believe not only can I show you something consistent, something that makes sense, but I can prove that the way I am interpreting it is the way it is intended to be interpreted. And so, uh, what we are going to do, we are going to go through all three accounts together. And it's going, this is, uh, I'm going to spend uh, today going through about half of it, tomorrow going through the second half. Day three, what I intend to do is show biblical precedent for how I am interpreting the Olivet Discourse, to show you that the, what I am doing is actually consistent with how Bible prophecy is interpreted. So please can everyone wait to label me heretic, reprobate, whatever, until after at least the third day. If after day three of this, you still think I'm a heretic, reprobate, whatever, that's fine. On day four, I intend to do a live stream answering questions, comments, criticisms. Uh, if you want to leave comments and questions as you do, as you hear these uh, in the uh, comment section of these videos, uh, go ahead and do that. I will discuss them on Friday. If you want to privately email them to me, uh, email them to me at the spirit of prophecy 1611 at gmail.com and we'll cover those on Friday. I typically try to prioritize the live stream questions, uh, but I know it's going to be hard for everyone to be there uh, live at noon on a Friday. Uh, but Lord willing, I'm going to do it at noon. I could possibly change the time to a later time. Um, I'm not real sure about Friday's schedule yet, so I might move that to the evening. So be be prepared. Uh, I'll leave a community post telling everyone for sure when I'm going to do it. But I'm, I'm leaning towards noon, but I, I'm, I'm hoping to do it at a later hour uh, to help with the live audience. Because So anyway, um, but when it comes to the Olivet Discourse, there is a big fight amongst the futurist and the preterists. The preterists read Matthew 24. They see everything is in the past. The futurists read Matthew 24 and the Olivet Discourse. They see everything is in the future. And let me tell you, it is cringe city to listen to both sides. Both sides make some really bad arguments. It is painful to listen to people try to make, put it all in the future and, it, and to deny the past. And it is painful to, put, to listen to somebody try to put it all in the past. Can't do that. So I'm here today uh, to show you how to make it all make sense and to show you that preterists have some things right futurists have some things right but they both have something wrong or just something absent 
from what they are teaching that is causing people to scratch their heads and say something's wrong here. So we are going to uh, go through this. And then what I have here is I put this together where I basically put the all three accounts uh, in columns. And I got uh, so you can kind of look at each uh, subject together and to see if we can, you know, just to make sure we're not leaving any stone unturned. So let's start going through this and see how far we can get. But in Matthew 24, it says, Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Mark 13, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when shall these things be and what should be the sign when all these things should be fulfilled. And then Luke 21, and they asked him saying, Master, but when should these things be and what sign will there be when these things come to pass? Now, something very important that I want to point out to you right away is that the rapture, for lack of a better term, is not the primary motivation for the disciples asking these questions. Now, it mentions it men they one of the things they mentioned is the sign of thy coming. They did mention that, but the other two accounts do not mention that there. After Jesus uh, had pronounced destruction on the house of God in Matthew 23, we'll get to that passage later. They're looking at the temple, they're looking at the buildings, and what prompted these questions is Jesus told them there wouldn't be one stone left upon another. He's pronouncing destruction to the temple. But when we read this, when we futurists read this, we're just like, where's the rapture? It's all about the rapture. Well, no, wait a minute. It's about the destruction of the temple. That's what it's primarily about. Now, obviously, there's some things the disciples, they don't understand at this point. But the primary motivation is the fact that Jesus had talked about judgment coming on that generation and the destruction of the temple. So let's not, let's not forget that. We should be looking for that, too. Stop just focusing on the rapture because there are, this is, let me just say it this way, the Olivet Discourse and the prophecy that Jesus gave to his disciples were about that generation. That is undeniable. It was about that generation. Now, I, I might be losing you. I'm telling you there is consistency in what I am telling you and if you deny this, then you're, you're butchering a lot of other Bible prophecies, too. It's about that generation. Okay, so uh, we'll prove that more as we go. So after we see that first thing Jesus does, he warns them of some coming deception. And he says, and Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. Mark 13, Jesus answering them began to say, take heed, lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Luke 21, and he said, Take heed that ye be not deceived. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. Now notice what he said, that the time's drawing near for these things he's talking about. He's saying, don't go after them. You know what? This prophecy, Jesus is telling this to his disciples. 
they asked this in the context, like these things are going to, we're going to see them. And he's talking to them. He's warning them. He's not telling them about something 2000 years in the future. He's telling them something about that generation that they would live to see, that they would experience. And he said, it's drawing near. Not it's 2000 years away. It's drawing near. Okay. We, we like to ignore that one. Luckily for us, you know, futurists, we mainly hang out in Matthew 24 and that one's in Luke 21. But um, yeah, there's still stuff in Matthew 24 that we have to ignore. So again, this is, this is first century stuff, folks, without a doubt. Let's keep reading. So uh, now we have signs of the destruction or of the end of the world. It says, and ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There should be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in divers places, for all these are the beginning of sorrows. Mark 13. And when ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be ye not troubled, for such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. For nation shall rise against nation. These are things that happen before the end. Kingdom against kingdom. There should be earthquakes in divers places. There should be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. Luke 21, 9. But when ye shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified. For these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. Then he said unto them, Nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be earthquakes, shall be in divers places, and famines, and pestilences, and fearful sights, and great signs shall there be from heaven. So again, he's letting them know, hey, before the end, these are some things that are going to happen. Okay, While you all are anxious to see the end, the coming of Christ, the end of the age, or the end of the world, certain things have to take place first. And he's telling them things that are going to take place and these are things that they would see. Many of these, I mean, many of these things, the Bible tells us they saw these things. In that generation, these disciples, the people Jesus was talking to. So now he warns them of coming persecution that they would face and that they did face. Not coming persecution that we're going to face 2,000 years later. Well, let's look and see what it says. It says, then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. And that happened to some of them. And they should be, and you should be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. God can't bring that judgment and destruction until uh, they the they have been witnessed to, until they are told what's to come. And guess what? They did preach the gospel to every nation in that first century. We're not going to go to the passages on that. But Mark 13, 9, but take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils. And in the synagogues, you shall be beaten, and you shall be brought before rulers and kings for my name's sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what you shall speak, neither do ye premeditate. But whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye, for it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son. The children shall rise up against their parents, and shall cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure unto the end the same shall be saved. 
And so, again, those things happened. He's talking about things that they would deal with. Luke 21. But before all these, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, not a future generation, them, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it therefore in your hearts not to meditate before what you shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, and all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. And ye shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolk and friends. And some of you shall they cause to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But there shall not an hair of your head perish. In your patience possess ye your souls. And according to history, all of them got put to death, but not... but. Not or not all of them got put to death. It's only some of them. John did not, according to history. They tried, but they failed. And so uh, Jesus, and he knew what was going to come to pass. So um, all of these things, again, this is clearly about that generation. He's warning them of things that are going to come. Now, I am... Uh, I've got so much that I want to cover. I am not going to spend any time on this. But folks, the abomination of desolation does not happen in the middle of Daniel's 70th week. You're going to have to go back, watch my, I did a whole week just on Daniel's 70th week. No, Christ finishes the sacrifices. He causes the sacrifice and ablation to cease in the middle of Daniel's 70th week. Jesus did that. And in the midst of the week, he caused the sacrifice and ablation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. What is that all about? Well, remember when Jesus first came to the temple before the triumphal entry, you know, he said, you know, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Remember that? Uh, He referred to it as his father's house. But in Matthew chapter 23, after his triumphal entry, after he basically rejected Israel because they were not ready for him. Go watch my sermon about the day of visitation. Don't have time to repeat all that stuff. You know what Jesus said then? Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Why? Because he was done with it. They, they, The sons of Levi were not prepared they had not followed the instructions given them by Malachi and Zechariah and Ezekiel. They had not done any of those things. And so Jesus Christ replaced all those things with himself, with himself as the high priest, with himself as the sacrifice. Jesus Christ rejected Israel at that day. They were not. The things of the law <clears throat> had failed in making them worthy. So he brought in the new and better covenant on that day and left their house desolate. It was not his house anymore. It was their house desolate. He did that in the middle of the week. And basically, he removed his protection. He removed his blessing. And then they went on, and I believe it was abominable when they continued doing sacrifices after God rent the veil of the temple. And then historically, too, we can read about a lot of terrible things that happened in the temple around 70 AD, and we even see it destroyed. You know why? Because God left left it for desolations, and for the overspreading of abominations, and he did that in the middle of Daniel's 70th week, and it remained that way until the consummation or the completion that happened at the, at the, at the end of 70 AD. But Daniel's 70th week, uh, the midst of it, that is not the abomination of desolation. That is, that is not it. You got that from Larkin. You got that from dispensationalists. 
That is not what we see. So when he said, when ye shall see the abomination of, spoken of, by de, uh, of desolation spoken of by the end of the prophet, that was a specific event that I believe happened years after the time of Christ. That was one of the things that took place in the overspreading of abominations. Okay? There was that one singular event. But I don't want to spend a whole lot of time proving that. But I say all that to say that this next part we're about to read, I believe, has already happened. Matthew 24, 15, or <clears throat> when ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. And I'll tell you what that means in a little bit. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let them which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them there with child in them to give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then... At the abomination of desolation shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. And understand, the term tribulation, and the reason tribulation in Daniel's 70th week became connected was thanks to Larkin, because Larkin made the mistake of putting the abomination of desolation in the midst of Daniel's 70th week. That's, that was a mistake that he made. And so Larkin made the tribulation that is mentioned there a seven-year period, even though no timeline is given anywhere in the Olivet Discourse. Nowhere. No timeline's given. In fact, we're going to read later, all three accounts say, hey, nobody knows the day or the hour for these things. No timeline's given. Nobody knows when this, this, uh, this is going to take place, the coming of the Son of Man. So that was something that Larkin did, and he was wrong. He, he, he was an error. He made a mistake because he, uh, well, he had a lot of problems. But understand that term tribulation, great tribulation, it's not a seven-year thing. And technically, technically, the tribulation was something that happened in that day. Okay? Now, I know your heads are exploding right now, but hear me out. Before you call me a heretic or a reprobate, Hear me out, okay? You owe me that, okay? Are you saying there's no tribulation to come? I didn't say that. I said where we get the term tribulation from to talk about the events of Revelation was specifically about something that has already happened. That is indisputable. In fact, I like how Mark says it even better. But when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not go down to take uh, down into the house, neither enter therein nor take anything out of his house. And let him that is in the field not turn back for to take up his garment. But woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. And pray ye that your flight be not in the winter. For in those days shall be affliction such as was not from the beginning of the creation which God created unto this time, neither shall be. And except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved, but for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened those days. Okay? Now, again, we still haven't seen the word tribulation yet. It's coming. Okay, I got a little ahead of myself, but we're going to get to the tribulation part here uh, very soon. But um, look at what it says in Luke 21. And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies... 
then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For there should be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down to the Gentiles, until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now, let me tell you what I believe when it said, Whoso readeth, let him understand. Because the dispensationalists will use this. They put, the dispensationalists put all of this in the future. And they say, this is proof God's not done with Israel. Because why are we worried about our flat being on the Sabbath? You know, you know, are we supposed to flee into Judea? No, this was about the first century. Okay? And, you know, they didn't want their flight to be on the Sabbath because they closed the doors of the gates, according to history, on the Sabbath day. And that would be bad. Here's what I believe. It says, whoso readeth, let him understand. I believe Jesus was giving a message to his people who would still be in Jerusalem, that when you see these things, get out of the city. And according to history, that is exactly what happened. The Christians, when they started seeing all of these signs, you know what they realized? The desolation is nigh. We better get out of here. And according to history, no Christians died in that siege of Jerusalem while over a million Jews died during that time. You know why? Because they listen, they listen to the words of Jesus Christ. And so, futurists, can you stop trying to make that passage about something in the future? Hey, we're looking as bad as the dispensationalists when we do that. So this is about stuff in the first century. There's no doubt. We, we are still in the first century, ladies and gentlemen. All, and all of these things happen. We can look back at history and see where all these things took place. So let's go ahead and keep reading. Next section, uh, he warns that false Christs are coming. So he says, Therefore, if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers. Believe it not. Mark 13, And if any man... She'll say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or he is there, believe him not. For false Christ and false prophets shall rise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. But take ye heed, behold, I have foretold you all things. So basically what Jesus is doing here is he's just letting them know, hey, I am returning, but don't go looking for me on this earth. You know why? Because he's about to show them that when I return, I'll come get you. Just like we see in 1 Thessalonians 4, when it says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So when the Messiah returns, he will come for us. Never listen to any man on this earth who says he's the Messiah. I don't care what miracles he does. It's not the Messiah. There will be false Christs that come. And you know what? There may have been in that day. Okay. So do you believe there'll be some in the future? Well, let me just say, yes, I, I do believe that. But that all this easily could have happened 
probably did happen in the first century. I don't know of any specific examples of that, but uh, if somebody finds one in history, it will not change my position on one thing. In fact, I'd be surprised if you couldn't find an example of that. Something was deceiving these people and getting them to stay in Jerusalem to be slaughtered. So uh, I, I think it would have been false prophets during that time. So basically, in now in uh, Matthew 24, he gives a description of what the real coming of Christ will look like. For as lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. So basically, it's going to happen. It's going to it's going to come fast. It's going to come like lightning. That's what it's saying right there. So um, again. If you've got to go to a desert, if you've got to go to a secret chamber, you've got to take a pilgrimage to Israel, it's not the Messiah. It won't be a process for you to get to him. No, it won't even be a process for him to come to you. It's going to happen real quick. So he'll. don't worry, folks. Don't go Messiah searching. Okay? Don't go Messiah searching. He will come for us. That's what that's teaching. So now this is where we get the term tribulation. And we are in the first century. Okay. I'm sorry, but it's just a fact. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. Mark 13, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars of heaven shall fall and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. Luke 21, and there should be signs in the sun and in the moon and the stars and upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity and the sea waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and looking after those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Now, the preterists teach that the sun being darkened and moon turn to blood is a reference to the fall of Jerusalem or the fall of Israel because in Joseph's dream, he dreamed that his father, or the, he had a dream that the sun and the moon and the 11 stars all bowed before him. And, uh, you know, the sun represented Jacob, the moon his mother, you know, the stars his brothers. Therefore, the sun, moon, stars falling. That's a reference to Israel and their light going out. So many people believe, and you know what? It makes a lot of sense. It really does make a lot of sense. Um, however, I believe... It is a, uh, I, I, I do believe, it is my position that it is a literal event, okay? And tomorrow, probably, I will explain why that is, okay? Those of you in the Preterist camp or Historicist camp, I probably lost you with that, but I'm going to show you why I believe that's literal tomorrow, uh, and I, uh, you know, I think you got to give me credit where credit's due, okay? What I'm going to tell you is going to make sense. There's going to be full consistency, and what I'm, what I'm telling you, but I do believe it. Um, I do believe it's a literal event and I do believe it is to come. Okay. I do believe it is to come. Now, when we get to the sun being darkened and moon turning to blood, all of a sudden now, I will tell you that did not happen. I believe it is my position that the prophecy that Jesus gave is it was a prophecy for that generation. It was a prophecy for the first century. And I believe that some of it was fulfilled. And I also believe that some of it was not fulfilled. Okay? Now, I've got to be able to give a reason for that. Okay, I've got to be able to prove 
that it's okay to do that. And here's what we, we got to understand, and I'll, I'll cover a lot more of this probably on day three. When it comes to prophecies, it's not always just the prophet saying this is what's going to happen. We always think of prophecy as just predicting the future. Sometimes prophecies have a call to repentance in there, meaning, hey, there's a chance you can avoid this judgment. Sometimes prophecies promise something good, but there is also a, a call for obedience for that to take place in order for that to be fulfilled. So prophecies are not always just the prophet saying, this is exactly what's going to happen. No, sometimes there's contingencies. Sometimes there's requirements that need to be fulfilled. And so we've got to check. We've got to look at all the words of the prophecy and we've got to look to see if there's anything like that in there. And I'm telling you, it's there. We're, we're going to see that. And so what's happening is everyone's reading this as this is a prediction of Jesus that has to play out word for word, no contingencies. The preterists try to put it all in the future. That doesn't make any sense. Or in the past, doesn't make any sense. Futurists try to put it all in the future. That also doesn't make any sense. But here, here's what does make sense. This is a prophecy for that generation, without a doubt, but not all of it got fulfilled. And so I've got to, I've, I've got to show you why that wasn't the case. Because I believe when we get to the sun being darkened and moon turned to blood, I do not believe that has happened. After the sun is darkened and the moon is turned to blood, the next part that we have is the glorious appearing, or what many of you call it, and I'm trying not to, the rapture it says, and then after the sun is darkened and moon is turned to blood and then shall appear the sign of the son of man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Mark 13. And they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then shall he send his angels and shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of earth to the uttermost part of heaven. Luke 21. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Now, what many in the preterists and the historicist camp will tell you is that this is not this is a reference to coming in judgment. And there is some precedent that they can show from the Old Testament. I don't have the passages in front of me where this coming in clouds is a reference to judgment. But here's the problem with that. That when the words of Jesus, here's what the preterists are doing. They're trying to make the Olivet Discourse fit what actually took place in the first century. The problem is if we let the words of Jesus form our thinking you are not going to read these passages and see something negative. We're seeing Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, we're seeing the tribes of the earth mourning, but he's coming in power, in great glory. He's sending his angels with the great sound of a trumpet. Looks like he's doing a gathering here, like Paul talked about. In Luke 21, it's the most po positive when it said, when you see these things, look up, lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. That's positive. Jesus is pronouncing something positive 
on this prophecy for that generation. So to make this about a coming in judgment and say that, you know, in the Olivet Discourse, when it's talking about the coming of the Lord, you know, this isn't about the future coming that Paul talked about, you know, the resurrection of the dead and all that. No, this was something, this was a coming in judgment. And I will concede the fact that in 70 AD, you could say that that was a coming of Christ in judgment on Jerusalem. I will concede that fact. I will give you that. Okay. Well, I might not be a hundred percent sure that's the appropriate way to put it. it. It very well could be. It definitely was part of God's punishment on Jerusalem. So if you want to say there was a coming of Christ in judgment in 70 AD, I can, I can, I can hold your hands and stand with you on that. But in this prophecy, in the Olivet Discourse, what Jesus is speaking of here is positive. And it didn't happen. That didn't happen. Redemption did not come for people in 70 AD. That didn't happen. Now, the big question is, why not? And that's what we will discuss on tomorrow's program. Tomorrow, I'm going, I'm going to leave you hanging a little bit for today. But I want to leave you with this. I want to end with this. Again, the Olivet Discourse is a prophecy from Jesus Christ that is given to that generation. Not a generation 2,000 years in the future. That generation. Matthew 12, 41 says, The men of Nineveh shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. And uh, when the unclean spirit has gone out of man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. When he has come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. Folks, what generation had a greater than Solomon preach and a greater than Jonah preach to them? Uh, it was the generation of the first century. That generation, okay? Not, not our generation. That generation had Jesus Christ in the flesh preaching to them, and they should have repented. Matthew 23, 35, this is what triggers the Olivet Discourse, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel into the blood of Zacharias, the son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation folks it's 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 that generation it was the generation of that century jesus goes on he did he talked about the sun being dark and moon turned to blood it didn't happen he talked about the glorious appearing it didn't happen he gives the parable of the fig tree so they would know when those things were about to happen we'll read those tomorrow but then he said verily i say unto you this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Mark 13, Luke 21, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. What are we going to do with that? Uh, I believe that prophecy 
was for that generation, but not everything took place. And I have to explain why. I, gotta, I have to give you a good Bible reason why it didn't happen and why I believe the sun being dark and moon turned to blood and the glorious appearing are still yet to come. And I believe from the Olivet Discourse, I can show you something that both sides are ignoring. And as a result of it, there's a lot of inconsistency in the interpretation. So tomorrow, I will show that to you. And then remember, day three, we will I will show precedent. I will give further proof that what I how I am interpreting the scriptures is not inconsistent with how you interpret Bible prophecy. And then day four on Friday, we will do questions and answers. So I, I encourage you to leave any questions, comments, concerns, criticisms that you might have. And so thank you all for watching this. I hate to leave you hanging, but promise me you'll wait a couple more days before you call me a heretic, all right? And I, I promise you won't be disappointed. So thank you for watching this, and we will see you all tomorrow. God bless.